good morning, family. It's good to be with you. For those who are wondering, my full name is Anthony. Uh, somewhere along the line of my life, uh, that just disappeared. And my mom and my wife are the only people that use it, and I'm Ann. So, so it is written. We're going to be in Psalm 62 this morning. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 62. You can say amen when you have it. Amen. Feel free to amen as often as you feel the Spirit leading you uh, during the course of the sermon. Just keep it open. We'll read it in a moment. In her book entitled A Spacious Life, author Ashley Hale writes on the topic of waiting. She says, when we learn to wait well, we get to leave behind the hustle that feels like anxiety, the sense we're always behind where we should be. When we wait well, we leave behind hurry. We slow down to see the beauty of being a creature, a part of God's good created order, not the masters who are responsible for keeping it all together. Waiting, she says, allows us to see ourselves as exuberant children running to God. Waiting is good news. It is an invitation into a spacious life, not the barrier to it. Waiting is not wasted time. And our psalm this morning is one of trust in waiting during times of trouble. It's easier to read this than actually do it, but we're going to pray that the Lord would give us grace to, to do just that. Let's read Psalm 62 together. To the choir master, according to Jejuthun, a psalm of David. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man 
according to his work. This is God's word. Thanks be to God indeed. Let's ask the Lord for his help now. Father, we are weak. I am weak. And so we need your help. We need your help to be attentive. We need your help to preach. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and lift up Christ, exalt Christ through the preaching of the word of God. Would you show us our Savior so that we would be helped in waiting and in trouble and so that we would be made more like him? I ask that you would do all this for your glory and the good of your precious church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the text simply titles this as a psalm of David. Uh, We know the bold headings are uninspired, and sometimes you can get a little bit about the occasion of the psalm from the heading, but we don't have that here. It just says a psalm of David, and so what is the occasion It was probably written while David was king and was in the midst of an intense conflict with his son, Absalom. David had gotten a little lax and the kingdom started to drift away from him. And Absalom, his son, seized this opportunity to capitalize and kick David off his throne. And the thing about Absalom is everyone loved him. He was handsome, head to toe. 2 Samuel 14 tells us that his hair, which was a symbol of his strength, was wonderfully full and beautiful. And every year he would get this haircut and he would weigh his hair on a scale and it would measure up to four or five pounds in in weight. He was well liked. He was good looking. He was the son of the king and Absalom knew it. And he begins to challenge his father, King David, by taking over his authority. He publicly belittles David. He spreads rumors in the kingdom about him. And he secretly assembles an army and promotes the false narrative that he, he is the king, not his father. He is the true king. And and as a result, David loses the support of the younger generation in his kingdom. And he, he, he puts his leadership in this precarious position. David learns of all that's going on and his alarm, his confusion, his fear, his anger even drive him back to God. He is in trouble and he is waiting alone on the Lord for help. And while he is waiting, he likely wrote this psalm. It is a psalm written under pressure, but it radiates profound faith and trust in in the covenant-keeping God of Israel. David expresses this trust through having a conversation with God, a conversation with himself, and then a conversation with the people of the kingdom. Are you with me there? Please please respond. It's not a rhetorical question. Uh, Yes. Amen. So what I want to do is I want to walk through this conversation in three honest statements. So if you take notes and you'd like to write these down, these are my three points. Point number one, I am in trouble. Point number two, tell me the truth. And point number three, teach me the difference. 
And in those three statements, I think we as believers, as Christians, have a kind of recipe for how to navigate trouble when it comes and how we wait in faith. And my hope is as we leave today and go out into our weeks, we will leave meditating on this. If I were to sum up the point of this sermon in in one sentence, it would be this. Because of Christ, it is possible to be in trouble and not be troubled. Because of Christ, it is possible to be in trouble and not be troubled. It is possible to be surrounded by adversity and still be confident and clear. Let's make our way to that in our first point. Point number one, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. Just look at verses 3 and 4, and then I'm going to circle back to verses 1 and 2. I I want us to see the context in which David declares his trouble and, and his trust. David is in danger, and he's honest about the danger. Psalm 62, 3 to 4 says, How long will you attack a man to batter him, to thrust him down from his high position? Now, he's in real trouble. He's vulnerable. He's weak. And just let's consider the troublemakers that he's talking about here in his, in his plea, in his psalm. Notice David's opponents verbally assault him. The essence here is that they are trying to break his spirit by using tactics of intimidation and rumors and insults. It's, it's not as much physical as it is emotion, emotional wounds they're trying to inflict. And David's own son is using words to inflict harm. These are the wounds that stay even after the body has healed of, it, of its physical wounds. Notice a couple things about the evil these troublemakers are doing. They delight in breaking down the weak and the bruised. David seems to be getting at this in verse 3 where he says, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. He's beaten down. He's almost ready to break. And one more shove, one more emotional wound, one more cut with with the knife of the tongue and he will topple over. And that's when his enemies are going to pounce on him. They they kick him while he's down. This is what the world might call survival of the fittest. Only the strong survive. The weak are weeded out. Look at verse 4. They're only plotting evil. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. And not only are they plotting evil, they've become obsessed with it. They're only doing the plotting of evil. That's That's all they're thinking about. And on top of that, they delight in falsehood. They enjoy lying. This comes out in their hypocrisy. Look at the second half of verse 4. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. They're nice, which is not the same as goodness. They're nice to someone's face while spewing hatred on the inside where God alone sees. Their weapons are now abuse the vulnerable, map out a plan for their destruction, use lies and pretend kindness And this could really be the playbook for a business strategy or even a political campaign, couldn't it? These tactics are appealing to the world. Lies and deceit can appear as powerful tools in the race to be on top or the struggle to be liked or to be popular. I I watched a a clip. Uh, I don't have Instagram. Sometimes I will hijack others just to see kind of what's going on. And I watched this clip of, a, of an influencer who was filmed picking up trash on a beach. 
And they, they take, you know, several good shots and they get some angles and they probably use some filters afterwards and, and, and you know, the usual stuff that they would do to make the picture or video really appealing. And, and after they're finished recording their post of them picking up trash on the beach, the, there's an observer who's filming them. And as he, he looks on with his camera, he sees the person being filmed drop the trash back on the beach and walk off. But, you know... I'm pretty confident that the video got like plenty of likes and people were, you know, singing that person's praises of how, how benevolent they were and how caring they were for the environment. Because the truth is lies work. Hypocrisy works to a point. It's an effective tool to a point. But it is a house of cards that is destined to fail and fall eventually. I do think we see this in the psalm. I think we see this in the sense that the leaning wall, the tottering fence, some scholars are, are, are kind of split on who David is actually talking about. On the initial reading, it sounds like David. David is the, the leaning wall, the tottering fence. He's, he's going to tip over. But as, is it David whose strength is failing? Or could it be that those who appear strong through their lies and their hypocrisy are actually on the verge of collapse. Their dishonesty, their bad intentions might actually be their undoing. Because in the end, family, that's what sin does. It presents itself as strength, as as advantage, but it leaves us worse than it found us. And I think David knows that they cannot succeed by using sinful methods. Even if they secure a few early wins, David is ultimately the unshakable one in the song. How do we know this? We know this because in verse 1, he says, God alone is my rock. And rather than being a God who beats the weak down while they're vulnerable, he gives grace to the humble. This is how he introduces himself in Exodus. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God of, who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He announces to his people, this is how I deal with the weak. I'm merciful. I'm loving. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. He's gentle with bruised reeds. And rather than exploit weakness to harm us, his strength, the Bible tells us, is actually made perfect in our weakness. This is what the Lord tells Paul in 2 Corinthians, that my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Isn't this how Jesus talks about himself in Matthew? He's gentle. He's lowly in heart. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. In him we find what? Rest for our souls. This is the God that David is crying out to in confidence. And so he says, God alone is my rock. He is honest about his trouble, but he knows God alone is his salvation, his fortress. He shall not be greatly shaken. The phrase there is, God is his top security. 
There's actually an emphasis of certainty that comes out better in the King James translation. If you read it, maybe you even have it in front of you. It says, truly or yes, indeed, he is my rock and my salvation. And the phrase is used six times in the song. David is a king with resources and armies at his command and his disposal, yet his confidence is not in any of that. His confidence is in God, his fortress. And so he is in trouble, but he's not troubled. He's in real trouble, but he's not troubled. He's vulnerable, but he speaks about the source of his strength. And, and just think of our lives. What's thrown us into a panic this week? Has it been something as simple as an unkind word? Has it been what Pastor David prayed for earlier, financial stress? Is it family concerns? Is it the fear that you will be lonely forever? Is it your health? Our, our circumstances can plunge us into deep distress and alarm. But, but Christian, believer, brother, sister, friend, when Christ is ours, we can look up and say, with David, he is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Amen. Amen. If, if we are in Christ, those things are people that would do us real harm, simply do not have the power to move us. If we, by faith, have God as our defense, our souls can rest secure in him. There are a thousand paper fortresses that invite us to find safety and comfort in them. Take your pick. Money, sex, entertainment, well-behaved kids, political parties. But all of them, all of them will fail to do what only Christ can do for the soul. Because none of them are Christ. Only Jesus is, is King and Lord and Savior and God. We sung it earlier. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. And I wonder, just in a very practical sense, as you look around the church here, do we recognize even the safety that God has provided in his people? Oftentimes we feel much like David, and we think we are alone. But do we notice the safety that God has provided in the church? I was reminded of this as I, I love nature videos, and sometimes I watch them with Jaden. Olivia's not as interested, but Jaden cannot get enough of them. And, and there's this fish, this gold saddle goat fish, and it's a small fish native to the Hawaiian reefs, and it has this distinct coloring. And these divers in Hawaii who came across this fascinating phenomenon during their regular dives, they noticed a large fish with the same brilliant colors as, as this fish. But it was massive. And as they got closer to it, they realized that it wasn't one large fish. It was many of these fish in a school that would get in this position of looking like a, a larger fish to protect themselves from predators. They would huddle up and become this imposingly large figure not to be trifled with. And it turns out when this fish feels threatened, feels like it's in trouble, well, they join together, unified in formation to appear much larger than they actually are. And what a good example for us as believers when we are in trouble. Do we turn inward 
Trusting only in ourselves for safety and and huddling up at home by ourselves? Or do we huddle up with God's people when given the opportunity and in trouble? Do we face it with the people of God, with our brothers and sisters and link arms and say together, Jesus Christ is my hope and trust. He is in the midst of us. When we do that, he says in Matthew 18, doesn't he? After David is honest about his trouble, in real trouble, he turns now to himself to hear the truth, to himself. This is point number two, tell me the truth. We see this in verses five to eight. Now notice verses five and six here. He repeats almost word for word the things he'd just been saying. Look at five and six. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. And so he repeats the truth that he spoke in verse 1 because this is how he calms his soul in the face of trouble. He repeats the truth. You see that? The second section sounds almost identical to the way the psalm begins with just a few minor differences. Verse 1, for God alone my soul waits in silence. Verse 5, for God alone, oh my soul, wait in silence. In other words, oh soul, be still. Calm down. Note two things. David preaches to himself things that he already knows. We know he knows them already because he said them in verse 1. There's a lot that we could say on the topic of preaching to yourself. There's whole books that have been written on it. Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges is a great one. If you don't have it or know of it, go get it, find it, and read it and, and share it with others. So much we could say on what it means to preach to oneself. But as I, as I meditated on the psalm and meditated on what does this mean for me, I, I think we can walk away with simply this. When we're thinking of preaching to ourselves, one is that we are always doing it, and two is that we must do it. We're always preaching to ourselves, and we must preach to ourselves. Not a day goes by when we are not saying something to our souls, to our hearts, preaching. And as David is in trouble and he turns inward to his soul, he tells himself the truth again and again. God is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. And notice how effective this little sermon is. Look at verse 2. He says, I will not be greatly shaken. In other words, I'll be a little shaken. Like, you know, I'll be jostled, but it won't be that bad. I won't be greatly shaken. But now... After he's preached to himself, things that he already knows are true, he says in verse 6, without qualification, I will not be shaken. So if there was partial confidence before, it's been now replaced with complete assurance. The words from verse 2 have begun to take root in his heart and stabilize his soul. Think of the, same, the sermon that David could have preached to himself. Maybe this is what you've said. In your heart, this week, all is lost. It'll never be any better. 
For David, he's looking at his kingdom. He says, the kingdom is in shambles. Life will never be good again. My family is ruined. My life is over. That's the, life, that's the sermon he could have preached to his heart. But he looks away from himself, his surroundings, and he preaches of God's salvation to himself. Yes, indeed, he alone is my rock and my salvation. And, and beloved, we are always preaching to ourselves. And if we are going to be in trouble and not be troubled... We must preach to ourselves the truth of who God is. Paul David Tripp puts it so well. He says, you are constantly preaching to yourself some kind of gospel. You preach to yourself an anti-gospel of your own righteousness, power, and wisdom, or you preach to yourself the true gospel of deep spiritual need and sufficient grace. You preach to yourself an anti-gospel of aloneness and inability, or you preach to yourself the true gospel of the presence, provisions, and power of an ever-present Christ. How do you speak to your soul? Do you? Do you speak to your soul in times of trouble? How many times have I told myself of Christ's abiding and sacrificial love for me today? Do I see this? And do you see this as a real valuable weapon in your spiritual armory in times of trouble? Preaching to yourself, just as David does here. David tells his soul to be still and wait. Slow down. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. David's trust of God in times of trouble is strengthened in stillness and waiting. Now, maybe you're like me. These are two things that I do not enjoy doing. I don't enjoy inactivity, and I often don't enjoy waiting. But as I've been forced to learn over time, and as has been told to me, the majority of my life and of our lives is going to be spent waiting on God for something. And David says, for God alone, oh, my soul, wait in silence. And the truth is, I struggle with stillness. I'm guessing perhaps you do too. You struggle with stillness and waiting because if you're like me, maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, I just feel useless when I'm not doing anything. Unless I'm doing something, I I, I don't feel like I'm contributing anything to the world. And, And really, I think what it might be is maybe I just don't like being with my thoughts sometimes. Or or could it be that our hearts are resistant to prayer? Stillness is an opportunity to pray, and that just, sometimes that unsettles us. Waiting feels like an inconvenience. One of the easiest ways to to just spot this in your own life is, what do you do in the line at the grocery store or at Target? Can you just stand there and wait? Or do you, you know, just start scrolling? What's out there? I don't know. We don't like waiting. We scroll on our phones in line. We can't help but be distracted. We can't help uh, 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 how waiting exposes how limited our power and knowledge is and just how out of control we actually are. In his commentary on the Psalms, John Phillips writes this. He says, inactivity seems to be the worst possible policy, doesn't it? Do something, anything. Don't just sit there. Do something. That is Satan's advice to the soul. Satan uses high-pressure tactics. He is the one who urges us to act impulsively and prayerlessly. Occasionally, of course, the Holy Spirit will prompt an exercise-sensitive believer to do something on the spur of the moment, but that is not his usual way. 
he gives us time to be still. And what does the hymn say? Be still, my soul. Your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. I love that hymn. If David doesn't slow down, be still and preach to himself, wait on the Lord, he won't be able to hear the truth of verse 7. Look at verse 7. On God rests my salvation, my glory. The word glory there is dignity or significance. He says, God is my mighty rock. My refuge is God. But here's what David has been convinced of. Now that he's voiced his trouble and now that he's slowed himself down and talked, to, talked truth to his soul, here's what he's arrived at. To really get to him, to really unsettle him in a way that just upends his life, Absalom and the rest of David's enemies would have to break down David's defense. And it will take more than lies. To, to really and truly ruin David, Absalom and all of David's enemies would have to have enough strength to crush the mighty rock who is God and forfeit David's salvation. And David knows any enemy from within or from without is no match for his God. Compared to the unwavering strength and pureness and saving power of the covenant-keeping God, Absalom and all his self-centered campaigns and efforts and lies, they just kind of seem childish and laughable. And so David was in trouble, but he's not troubled. Beloved, what David knew in part, we know completely. Jesus Christ is our surety and our strength. He is the rock on which our salvation rests and the cornerstone on whom the church is built. He is our dignity. He is our significance. And all of it rests on him. And because we are in Christ and we're made a new creation, we've been crucified with him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are covered by his very righteousness, the Bible says. He is the one who has overcome the world. This is how he comforts his disciples and John. And so family, hear this. To truly get to us, our sin, our flesh, the devil, our enemies will have to overcome the defense that is Christ. They'll have to be able to remove his righteousness from you. And separate you from his love and forfeit your, your, your standing in Christ forever. They'll have to be able to do that. And they're no match. He is our unshakable refuge who gives his church eternal life. And he says, they will never perish. The Father's given them to me and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And so to truly get to us, the world would have to strip the cross of its power to save sinners to the uttermost. No match. To truly get to you. Brother, sister, friend, evil spiritual adversaries would have to take Jesus off the throne and put him back in the tomb to stay. And they can't do that. He always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to him through the Father. Amen?
because of Jesus Christ, family, we can be in real trouble and not be troubled. David has been strengthened now, as I hope we've been strengthened. So he turns to everyone else in verse 8. This is his conversation with the kingdom people. And he says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is our refuge. Selah. Trust God, he says. David is so helped by God that he can't keep from helping others now. Everybody, come get some of this. This is, this is real help and salvation in times of trouble. Come and see who God is. He says he's a helper at all times. That's in every circumstance, because that's how life happens. It, ha- excuse me. it happens in circumstances. I'm driving, I'm waiting, I'm sick, I'm fearful, I'm confused, I'm excited, I'm discouraged, I'm joyful. These are the circumstances of life where we are called to trust God. Derek Kidner says what David has found in one crisis will avail at all times. What God has been to him, he can be for others. And notice, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Because God is worthy of our confidence at all times. In valleys and shadows of death and on mountaintops when we have joy, he's worthy of our trust. And not only are we encouraged to trust God, but David helps his readers with how to do this. How do we trust God and be in trouble and not be troubled? Yes, we preach to ourselves, and what else do we do? He says in verse 8, pour out your heart before him. The psalm has a lot to do with stillness and silence, but here David tells the people to speak, pour out your hearts before the Lord. The imagery here in the language is, is, is likened to emptying a container of water. That is what it's like to trust in the Lord. If silence before the Lord is the discipline of waiting on God, then then this discipline of, of of, of pouring out your heart is what it is to unburden yourself before the Lord. It's the act of speaking our trust to the God who is there. Robert Hawker says, Tell the Lord all that passeth in the soul. Your thoughts, your desires, your sins, your confessions, your regrets, your hopes, your dreams, your concerns, nothing is off limits. Pour out your soul before the Lord. That's what it means to trust him. Think of the consequences of keeping all that in. What happens when we choose not to do that? We well up with anger, with anxiety, We may crack with despair. We become inflated with pride, maybe crippled with guilt. David's encouragement is to pour all that out. That is how we exercise faith. We unload everything at the feet of Jesus and expect him to deal kindly and mercifully with us. That's why this section ends with Selah. To cause our hearts to pause and consider God as a safe place. Now, David has voiced his trust. He knows where it comes from. He's preached the truth to himself. He's told others to do the same. And he ends by asking, teach me the difference. Look at verse 9. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. 
There are three categories here that David draws attention to. One is man, the other is power, and the last is money. He wants to know the difference between God and what the world says is significant. He says, those of low estate, that's really men, all people, poor, wealthy, ordinary, high, low, are but a breath, a delusion. This is a metaphorical way of saying that compared to God, people are insubstantial puffs of wind who pass away like they're just dreams. We go up in the divine balances of eternity and we're weighed against the weight of God's glory. And even though we might seem like we're something now, we're like an insubstantial gust of air. Consider this in its likely context. Let's go back to Absalom. David's enemies are putting their trust in Absalom, his popularity, his followers, his cliques, you know, his, his, his likes. And he's got some power, but he's, he's taken sides against the covenant God of, of David and his true anointed. And perhaps you remember what happened to Absalom. He finally gets what he wants. He, he's at war with his father, the king. His chance finally comes. This is it. And in 2 Samuel, we're, we're told that as he's riding toward David in battle, he's caught on a tree by his, by his hair and impaled with a spear. A breath. A whisper. What about his power? You know, the, the, the power he gained through manipulation, fear, lies, violence, propaganda, conspiracy. It's gone. So David says in verse 10, put no trust in that power. Put no trust in extortion or oppression. His pride, Absalom's pride, died with him. And here the warning here is that the plans of the powerful to oppress and rob the poor and defy God will be visited by the judge of all the earth. He will, the Bible says, do right. Don't hope in things that will be undone by death and judgment in the end. David says, don't hope in money. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. If you're making money, don't set your heart on it. It can't buy you anything that really matters. And all it takes is a stock market crash or your checking account to get hacked. And, and then that goes away too. And this is why Paul tells Timothy to instruct the church that he's pastoring, to tell people not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides everything to us to enjoy. No human securities will survive. That's, that's David's point here. And, and the point really is not so much that we have nothing to fear from man, power, and money. It's that we don't have anything to hope for in them, ultimately. David's learned the difference. And here he says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. This is when David says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. This is a figurative way of, of saying God has repeated himself to me. Unlike so many of us parents who get frustrated and exasperated with repeating ourselves to our kids, He's, he serves a God who delights to, I'll say it again, but mercy. And what is God's lesson for David and for us? Notice three words as we close here, power, love, and render. 
in his trouble, David has learned the difference between man and God. Man is fleeting and faulty, and God is all-powerful. He's committed in perfect love, and he renders justice. All that Absalom pretended to be, God actually is. All that man's power, money, influence pretend to have, God actually has. Man is shaky. God is a rock. Man pretends to love. But he lies, and God has committed covenant love for his people, as seen in the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Man says that he he will render justice. I will will do it. But in the morally questionable world that we live in, we know that justice is not done often. Crimes are overlooked, and the guilty are spared. But David learns that God actually renders to a man according to his work. And that is a fearful thing to consider if you're here and you're not in Christ. Christ. Those who won't accept God's free pardon in Christ will face a fair trial before the bar of God and his justice. And you'll do it on your own with just your works. And the punishment for that is God's judgment in hell and separation from him forever. But don't we also see the offer of the Savior in these last few verses perfectly imaged? He is the lesson learned at the end of the psalm. This is a description, this love, this power and justice of the character of Christ. Jesus shows us that the God of Psalm 62 is real. He came and dwelt bodily. Limitless power as the creator of everything, the healer of the sick, the giver of sight to the blind. He has perfect committed love displayed in his death for your sin at the cross where God's perfect justice was poured out for our crimes. And Jesus rose to life on the third day and he ascended and he will return to deliver perfect justice in the world. He will render to everyone according to their deeds. And to those who are in Christ, your deeds are seen in the righteousness of Jesus. He is the reason we can be in trouble and not be troubled here in this life and in facing the next. We can wait And we can trust. We can, by faith, be honest with him about our trouble and find safety in Jesus because Christ is our rock. He is our salvation. He is our fortress. We shall not be greatly shaken. We shall not be shaken. Let me leave you with a quote and a song. Andrew Murray says, You are not going to wait on yourself to see what you feel and what changes come to you. You're going to wait on God to know first what he is. And then after that, what he will do and what he's done for you in Christ. I turn to wisdom, not my own. For every battle you have known. My confidence will rest in you. Your love endures. Your ways are good. When I am weary with the cross, I see the triumph of the cross. So in its shadow, I shall run till he completes the work begun. As you wait and trust, wait and trust, pour out yourself before the Lord. Do that in the shadow of the cross. He is our safe place, church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's... Let's thank the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that it would bear fruit in the lives of your people here at Franconia and that you would use it.
to glorify Jesus and be light in the world. In his name we pray, amen.